Welcome to the Strategy Mom Podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It is Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Strategy Mob. Today, I have an exciting guest. I'm looking forward to this because he's a, from the part of the country that I'm originally from, so that's going to be fun. I have I have Steve Stoning with me today. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me. Thanks, Jason. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, a lot of people are always surprised to find out that I am not a Canadian. In fact, most of the times when I speak at events in the States, they introduce me as the Canadian. And then when I speak at events in Canada, they introduce me as the Americans. I have no idea what I am, but I am an Idahoian uh, through and through. <laughs> so it's, 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 fun. it's fun to jam with you, Steve. And I know we're going to have some great conversations. But to kind of start off today's podcast, I thought it'd be really cool to kick it off with like an origin story. I always find it really interesting to hear kind of how people got started and ended up where they are. I don't think anybody ever kind of wakes up and goes, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> right? so, so Steve, I love to hear it. Now, how did you get started doing what you're doing? So right right now I'm I uh, do training and consulting for dealers for dealer groups OEMs and uh, mostly automotive industry vendors and I think like most people who do what I do I, it was kind of accidental um, I had uh, been I was the e-commerce director for the Asbury Automotive Group they're a publicly traded group here in the states and um, I left there at the end of uh, September two thousand nine beginning of October and um, to just kind of strike out on my own. And I had already in that role as e-commerce director, even though I reported to the CEO, it was strange. Uh, we were very decentralized. And so our 90 general managers really made the decisions for their store, even, you know, something as complicated as digital marketing. And if you think back to 2009, how little we kind of knew about it. And so I had to act as a consultant for those 90 general managers. I mm -hmm. couldn't come in and and say, you know, you're going to get rid of AutoTrader or you're going to spend this money on Google or whatever. Um, and so that kind of prepped me for what I started doing when I left, which is, uh, you know, coming into dealerships and, and dealer groups and, and working with OEMs on strategy, but not doing it like a bull in a China shop or somebody <laughs> with a, you know, with a high title, but rather, you know, coaxing, cajoling, uh, consulting with them to help them get where they needed to be. And, uh, um, it worked out really well right from the beginning. And if, you know, if you think about the end of 2009, we were in the middle of a recession, mm -hmm. it's kind of a weird time to go out on your own, but, uh, true. but also if you think about it, dealers are struggling. Right. And so I was able to offer some value pretty quickly to my clients. You know, um, I went through the recession in 2008, 2009, and that's actually what ultimately kind of brought me up here to Canada. And it was definitely an interesting time to, to break out and start doing something on your own. And, you know, it, this is one of those industries that once it kind of gets into your blood, it, it's really kind of hard to get it out. So it doesn't surprise me that people that have great success within kind of the day-to-day oper -day operations of a dealership end up breaking out thinking they might do something, but then ultimately just kind of get sucked back then in the form of some type of consulting or training or coaching. And, and I love, love talking to people like that. And we had a chance to kind of jam a little bit before we started today's recording. And I think you're dealing with a lot of the same 
situations or dealer conversations as, as I'm dealing with right now. And it's preparing for this new year. And there's just so much uncertainty. You know, there are some cases where we have a plan A, a plan B, plan C, a plan D, just, just to kind of get our, our year started. So I, I'd kind of love to hear from, from the conversations you've been having and where you are right now. How has that kind of that planning for the unknown going? Uh, that is the biggest challenge for dealers right now. And if, you know, if we think about traditionally uh, automotive dealers, uh, you know, it, it has always been a month to month proposition yep. for dealers. There's very little, you know, one year planning and absolutely zero five year planning for most dealerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, when times are good, uh, that sort of seat of the pants leadership is it actually works because dealers do a great job of taking advantage of what's in front of them. And I don't mean taking advantage in a bad way. I mean, taking advantage of all opportunities. Sure, and so, you know, when we think about when COVID uh, really first started to hit end of March, you know, mid-March, end of March, um, I, I, I can speak for my clients. They were having a record year. And, yep. and then all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, you know, some of them were actually closed down for a month or more. Uh, others had a lot of restrictions put on them, depending on where they were uh, in the country, uh, you know, what, what locale they were in. And, but when the client, when the customers started coming back, when the prospects started walking back in and, and inventories were tight, dealers were very quick to, to take advantage of that. They mm-hmm. made great grosses right away. You know, they weren't married to the discount pricing that they had in February. They very quickly pivoted. And so- Doesn't it kind know, of remind you a little bit of like 2009, 2010, like, you know, remember the cash for clunker yep. program, you know, we were, yep. we'd come right into it and it was like, I hate to say it, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> yeah, like, Truly. If you look at, and depending the on the location. Yeah. And depending on location, you know, uh, some dealers, it started in May, some it started in June, some it started in July, but it started for everybody and mm-hmm. it was a flood. And yeah, uh, your analogy of shooting fish in a barrel is correct. Um, the, uh, you know, interesting about the 2008, 2009 recession, if to, to talk about the resilience of car dealers, if you think about it, you know, any other industry that saw that sort of, uh, that sort of decline in retail sales, uh, all, you know, half of the retail locations would be closed, right? Oh, so if it's, sure. uh, you know, clothing stores or whatever, and, you know, and there were no, go- there was no government assistance for dealers. There was for some OEMs back then, but none, none for dealers. And yet, except for the consolidation that had already kind of started, you know, uh, Chrysler consolidating a lot, GM, uh, there we really didn't lose a lot of dealership locations. Yeah, they're very resilient. You know, the variable pay plan helps. But the fact is, is that dealers made those quick pivots back then and, and they made them, uh, you know, through COVID. The, the challenge is mm-hmm. how to do that going forward, because as we see from the October and November results compared to 2019, you know, this this uh, wave is flattening in some markets. Um, oh, yeah. I think, like, you know, we, for, we have this kind of like <clears throat> on, off, on, off, on, off kind of environment right now. And that's not – it's like it, we're, we're okay if we're off, right? And, and we, we know to kind of mm-hmm. how to – and down the hatches and, you know, ride out, you know, those cold winter months or the storm or something like that. And, you know, then we kind of know we come back out of it. Right. But this mm. constant back and forth of being on and being off either because of the government saying you so telling you so, or you have cars and, or you don't have cars, you know, <laughs> and one dealership, you know, that's, they had cars last month. They had a great month. 
this month they have no cars. <laughs> like this, right. so, so yeah. How do that's a that's a great place. That's going to become my question for you. Is like your kind of thoughts, your opinions. You know, how do we prepare our operations for this kind of on off on off you know environment that we're in right now? Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing, and it's really boring, but it it is you know it is being married to your processes. It's mm-hmm. it's having great processes that one take advantage of the moment, right? What's in front of us, but also you know, continue to work towards the future. So th- something silly like getting every up in the CRM, something as silly as that, you know, when so times are one, great, uh, it's, it's very easy to just, ah, that guy's a tire kicker and we don't need to put him in the CRM. Let's move on. The problem is, is when times are flat or down, which for some dealers, you know, November was down, Ford mm-hmm. was down as an OEM, for example. Um, when you don't put it up in the CRM, we lose all ability to do all those other processes, be back processes, uh, you know, marketing to that person. Let's say they came in to look at a 2020 escape and, uh, you know, they didn't buy in October, uh, but we didn't put them in the CRM. And then the 2021s come out and we've got this special cash or whatever. Um, we can't market to them uh, inexpensively. And, and so that's really, I think the challenge for dealers, it's, uh, you know, I'm not the first to say it, but you know, bad, Habits are learned in good times. And, and, you know, as you say, the on again, off again. So what we've had is we've had these good times and then bad times yeah. and good times and bad times. And it might be a week or a day or whatever. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, we, we got those bad habits for a month and then it was, then the market slowed a little bit and we didn't have, we couldn't pivot to get back into good habits. We just took advantage what was in front of us, there was just less in front of us. Right. Uh, it's totally true. You know what I, you know, I call it, and I've said it a lot in this podcast, probably people get tired of me saying it, but I call it full belly syndrome where, you know, as an industry, when things are down, we have a tendency of talking a lot about what could we have done to do better. Right. And mm-hmm. when things are good, we seem to just not talk about that at all. And we just want to focus on, you know, how, patting ourselves on the back and how amazing we are and, and so on and so forth, you know, but like you saw this, coming out of the recession, probably the same way I saw it, right? Look, um, and we'll see it. We'll see it this time too. I know for sure. Look, good operators, that cream rises to the top. And, and mm-hmm. you probably have already seen it in a few cases. And I'll probably, I'll probably ask you a little bit about that as well. But, you know, the ones that are really going to succeed here are the ones that are going to commit to executing a process that is more customer centric and maybe making it adjustments to that process so that they can increase their customer confidence in doing business with them, you know, instead of just kind of relying on the fact of, uh, you know what, once the shipment of new trucks come in, we'll sell them all. So who cares? Right. We, we have to, we, you know, it's like, I remember coming out of the recession, it was all about processing our way to profitability. And I see the same thing happening right now, you know, but as an industry or when you're talking to a dealer, like how do we get them, how do we change that mindset so that they start thinking that way, start talking about what they can't, what they should have done versus what they already did? And I, I think uh, the pandemic helped mm-hmm. because a lot of dealers were forced to um, create better experiences, shorter time in the dealership. You know, the number one complaint for consumers for decades has been how long it takes to buy a car. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of that, was required back, you know, I started in 85. Most of that was required in 85. You had to do fairly long needs analysis, fairly extensive qualification process. You know, you, you, you had to do a pretty solid feature presentation and, 
you know, a big product selection and really find the, the right vehicle, the relevant vehicle for them at the right value, build that value throughout. And today, consumers have been doing that on their own. They've been doing it, you know, some of them for a very long time because for so sure. much information is available before I come into the dealership. But getting an old school desk manager to understand that, <laughs> it was a little tough. Um, with the pandemic, we, we were forced to limit contact with consumers. And, uh, and so now the deals that used to take four hours in a dealership are taking two. And deals that used to take three are taking you know, an hour and 15 minutes. And we're getting things done more efficiently. Uh, my hope for, for dealers is moving out of this, that we don't go back to slowing down the process on purpose. Um, you know, I'm hearing reports of, of, you know, the backup at F&I on a Saturday at mm-hmm. dealerships that, that are really doing that well anyway. Um, and it doesn't make any sense because F&I has become so easy with the tools that are out there, you know, any that, that's, of the- That's a great model. point. I mean, talk, talk about just some unneeded control, right? Like yep. both me and you have been in the business long enough to know that that's, that's, how, that's how I got trained. I had to maintain control. I didn't control the customer, control the sell. And I can't tell you how many times I remember my sales manager. I'd go in there, maybe be venting about a customer or something like that. And they look me straight in the face and said, Jason, go take control. You know, you need to control that customer. And it's like, it's like today, I feel like if I was to tell somebody to do that, they look at me and go, you okay? Like, <laughs> you feeling all right? But, but I, I know I give our industry some hard time. I, I call it tough love, right? I give them some crap at times. But uh, to your point, you know, I, I have to admit the amount of change as an industry that we did in the last nine months is actually pretty damn impressive. Like collectively, yeah. we've stepped up and have are communicating with customers in ways that we always said we were never going to. Okay, yeah. So, um, uh, and let me... Um, so you've got these these sacred cows like F and I that that we're finding that you know if it's a trained F and I killer they're you know they're getting three thousand on the back depending on the the manufacturer but let's say you're a Ford dealer and you're getting an average eight or nine or twelve hundred dollars on the back mm-hmm. when you let the customer do their own F and I uh, you know with an iPad your back end grosses the average is higher it's not trained killer level but it's higher and and dealers were already starting to discover that pre COVID. During the pandemic, they were sort of forced to do that. And, and then on a side note, uh, or a, a, along those lines, um, I actually know one group that is uh, very seriously working towards getting rid of service advisors and mm. having the consumer, having the customer communicate directly with the technician. And the, the that's I blasphemy, like that. right? Oh, my gosh, you can't mm-hmm. do that. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried to toy with the idea of, of taking some service advisors off of commission. And oh my gosh, what'll happen to our our uh, you know our, our ROs, right? Uh, our dollars for ROs going to drop, and and you know we find out that this these things don't happen. This group, by the way, that talked that's talking about that, and I have to keep it confidential. Um, they went to their technicians and asked them their thoughts, and the technicians thought, you know, that would be great. That would remove this huge bottleneck uh, in getting con- in in speaking with the consumer. So when you think about this whole consumer experience, it really is about taking an honest look at, at these sacred cows and, and deciding which ones really bring value to the dealership. And then secondly, to the, the process and the buyer. Oh no, a hundred percent. I mean, look, there's, we've been doing 
business the same way for little, for a little over a hundred years, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and it, like, works. And, and, and it worked okay. and it worked. Yeah. Okay. You know, um, the consumers, I think expectation is, is like, look, they're excited actually to leave the house. They're excited. They want to go do something, but they don't want the same old experience. I'm having, you know, some dealerships where I work with right now having amazing success with getting uh, their customers to fill out the finance application and review some of the some of the additional extended warranty or protection options before they even come in for the test drive. Like they're, they're getting that conversation, you know, already started so that the application gets started or at least the seeds get planted so that when it comes in, it's not this big smack across the face that we're going to sell you something in addition to it. And then they're, look, they're, they're desking the deals with the protection in there because it, the conversation's already kind of had. So it's mixing it up. You know, when I had my dealership, you know, I was criticized for the fact that I had a four day on three day off work week. I, 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 because I was on a row of dealerships. I had a Mitsubishi dealership and, you know, there's Honda across the street, Toyota across the street. And I actually had a GM call me and go, you know, it's not cool what you're doing over there. You're actually pissing my staff off because they <laughs> want it. And I don't understand how you're doing it. I'm like, well, look, like, we got to have bigger conversations, right? And, you know, for me, it was, you know, look, I was a Mitsubishi dealership. You know how difficult it can be to attract really, really high-end talent to come work in a Mitsubishi dealership? Not the easiest way to do it. So I wasn't going to be through pay. I didn't have the money to do it, you know? So I had to find another hack. And it was, for me, it was family life balance. You know, being able to offer, you know, some incredibly talented salespeople to come work for me and only work four days on and three days off, I had a list of people willing to okay. sign up for that deal, right? But then it was... But, it was having those conversations, you know, and, and how we were going to process our way to more profitability. And I feel dealers need to have these, well, they should have been having the conversations years ago, right. you know, but I feel to your point, if there's a silver lining in this pandemic, that is kind of the silver lining. And I hate to say that there is, but it is kind of the silver lining for industry is that we're now having those real conversations. And um, my, my, my curiosity, and my next question, I think for you is, you know, how do we get our managers to start having those conversations? Because that's not typically something that they do. Well, there, obviously there's the, um, you know, job security and not having that conversation. Exactly. Um, and so that's, that's really the tough part, but I think we've learned so much, you know, dealers have, have learned so much through this pandemic, not just from a customer experience standpoint, but also from, to your point, a staffing standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, I, I do know of, of dealers that are doing the four-day work week now. I do know of dealers who uh, have allowed their BDC to stay remote uh, or some of the agents to stay remote or do a few days remote. You know, those quality of life things for the staff, that's a big piece of it. Uh, another thing that, you know, would have been blasphemy prior to COVID is that we can sell more vehicles with fewer people. So these Good stores point. that used to just flood the floor and they constantly had that bottom 50%, uh, you know, turning over uh, and their managers were tied up with nothing but recruiting and hiring. They found that during COVID they could sell more vehicles with fewer people and they just needed to staff it. Right. Right. They, For sure. Instead of the typical AB, you know, team A, team B and having this overlap on some days and then we're stretched thin on other days. And they realized, you know what, we can, we can actually staff kind of like a restaurant would, if you, if you think about it, you know, restaurant doesn't have, Everybody come in at 9 a.m. when they open at 11, right? Mm -hmm. They they have they they stagger the staff throughout the day, so people are thinking about it differently. And that, I think that's a, the biggest piece. I, it's, it is a silver lining in all this. Well, the cool thing is because we're forced to do it. You know, like uh, I sit down with a lot of dealerships, you know, consulting with them on their on their goals and objectives, and I actually 
it's it's interesting when we take a goal instead of uh, using the language goal, but we turn it into a mandate. How much we're willing to change everything because there is no other option. You know, for right. example, like my Mitsubishi dealership, I had to close at forty five percent. Right, if I was going to cover my monthly nut, right, that was just that was it. You know, I only had so many bodies coming in. You know, my marketing efforts was only going to bring in so many things. Like there wasn't an option. You know, so it's it's crazy when you when you get kind of put into a corner like that, and you're like you realize like there's not an option, and then you have to reverse engineer backwards to adjust your process so that you can you can fulfill what the mandate is, not what the the goal is. Um, the the thing I find interesting though is that still even today we do this kind of horrible job of measuring the effectiveness of our processes. Do you see this too? Like, like we'll go as far as like documenting a process and putting it out there. And then we just kind of like feel like we're done. There, there are certainly dealers that do that. And, um, but the ones growing share, uh, you know, whether it's an up market or down market, um, the ones that have lower turnover, uh, happier teams, they, they don't have those issues because they do, you know, you can't have process without measurement. And so they do rely on those measurements to, you know, to make continuous process improvement, to kick out, you know, pieces of the process that aren't working to uh, determine where someone needs particular help. Right. I, I used to use the example of two 10 car salespeople. Um, you know, at the end of the month, we talk to each, uh, each of those two salespeople, the exact same way in most mm -hmm. dealerships. Right. That's true. But, uh, you know, if we look at the data, we might see that one of the 10 car salespeople had 50 opportunities and the other had 20. Um, if we knew that the, the conversations would be different, wouldn't they? Right. I mean, the one with 50 is uh, burning through our opportunities. Yep. The one with 20, we need to put them in front of more people. We need to find ways to, to get more warm butts in seats in front of that person. So, um, yeah, that it, while it feels like uh, dealers don't, you know, use data, um, there's a number that do, and 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 that's the those are the ones that are know, successful. When you think of, well, when we think about conferences and and the dealers that are on the cover of the different magazines and all of this stuff, you know, the ones that are really doing a great job, they're not telling anybody. I mean, they're <laughs> the, the guys in their twenty group, the gals in their twenty group probably know what's going on at that dealership, but they're not, you know, they're not when we had conferences, they're not, you know, standing on the stage, uh, touting, you know, what they've been doing, they're doing it secretly and they're taking share without others knowing it. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden the dealer across town is thinking, you know, gosh, what's that guy doing? Right. Oh, he must be, you know, must be the whore on price or whatever. I mean, it's not the case. They're just beating you with solid processes and a really happy team, um, that, that is really productive throughout the day. You know, you're, you're so right. Solid processes really do generate a happy team. You know, like I actually been asked that question, like, how do I make my team happy? You know, and I remember sitting in a meeting one time and this HR manager speaks up and he's like, benefits. Like, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and then someone else said, time off. And, you know, another one said, increase in pay. And, you know, just kind of, I'm just like, I'm just sitting there just kind of biting my tongue. And I'm like, no, <laughs> structure. Yeah. Staff want structure. They, they want to know what they're getting themselves into every day. And when there's a clearly documented, defined structure to the process, then they feel like they can accomplish that process and they walk away mm -hmm. feeling accomplished. Do, do you see the same thing? I absolutely. And I, and I try to explain it to desk managers. I use, they're not really a scapegoat here, but I, 
but you know, oftentimes the desk managers are also the sales manager who is in charge of a team, and those people, you know, he or she is responsible for their success. And the way that I explain it to them about about structure and about direction and about processes is, I ask them, "Would you be happier if you knew exactly what your boss wanted out of you, whether that's mm-hmm. the GM or the owner? Mm-hmm. Would you be happy? You know, would you be happier? Would you be more productive? Would you, you know, be more successful?" Oh my gosh, I sure would. I boy, if I just knew, you know, what that they really wanted. And it's it's well, it's the exact same thing for your people. You know, great people want that and good people need that. And when you don't provide that, and we can use all sorts of terms for it, structure, process, rules, direction, whatever, they all mean the same thing. And that is I need to know what's expected of me. And as long as you tell me what's expected of me and then you help me get there, I'm gonna be really successful. And I'm not going to leave. Why would I leave? Right? I'm successful here. No, that's that's so true. You know, I think I think a lot of dealers right now are thinking about those staff. And I think that from two perspectives is how do we retain the staff? But also here here's the tough one I think for a lot of people is how, how do we track new talent? And um, that's always been a bit of a challenge for us in the past. I think right now even more so of a challenge, you know, because there's just so much uncertainty. I mean, you know, I have a GM right now that's, you know, going uh, next month, I'm not going to have any trucks to sell, which represents 65% of my business. Do, do I keep those guys employed out there? Do I, do, I, do I lay them off for a month and then bring them back the following month? You know, for, for all the dealers out there right now that are staring down that barrel of, of needing to attract um, new talent into their dealership, what kind of advice would you, would you give them, Steve? Well, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And, right. and if you think about the last, you know, I don't know, 50 years in automotive, it's, it's been, you know, I just need some good people. I just need some good people. Um, you know, when I, when I speak to 20 groups and I, I stay for the discussions that the dealer principals have, you know, they're always one used car manager away from really getting it right with used cars. And if you attend the same 20 group for three sessions in a row, you know, the first, you know, the first one of the year in March, the dealer principal saying, I, you know, I got to get a new used car. I got to get a new used car manager. I got to replace my used car manager. Second meeting, you know, four months later, he's talking about, yeah, I got this great guy. He's terrific. He's killing it. He's crushing it. I finally got the perfect used car manager. And then fast forward to the, to the meeting in the fall or winter. And guess what he's looking for? The used car manager. <laughs> yep. And so the, the problem is not attracting people. All the, it, the problem is, is we still treat people the way we did in the 80s and 90s. And that is, we threw them all into the deep end of the pool and the ones that swam, they were cut out for the car business. And the ones that don't, well, they just weren't cut out. The the pool of talent has shrunk. Fewer people are willing to work. You know, fewer 18, 22 year olds, fewer of them are willing to work for a car dealership. For sure. And so we cannot, it's not sink or swim. We're way beyond that. And so it's not about attracting good people. It's about making the most of the people that you have, getting the most out of them, making your underperformers average and getting your average performers to be great. And that requires some leadership. That requires this this weird concept that we've bandied about in automotive forever. But it it's, you know, the the problem for most managers in automotive, and it's um I feel bad. Because their problem is, is that nobody helped them succeed. That's they so were true. one of the ones that swam. Um, and so they never, a lot of them never had an example of, of great leadership, of someone who really cared about them, who understood that his success or her success 
was not their own. It was because of the team and that the only way that they were going to reach their goals was to make sure that every salesperson who worked for them maximize the opportunities, whether it's the opportunities in the CRM or the opportunities that walk on the lot, mm-hmm. that they maximize you know, their time in the dealership to be productive uh, and effective. It's, it's why I wrote my last book, The uh, Ridiculously Simple Sales Management. No, which is a great book, by the way. Anybody watching, listening, need to go check that out. <laughs> you know, um, I look. I know it's getting towards the tail end of our time today, and uh, but you, you, you're so right. You know, having having that retention strategy with staff. You know what I mean? Like, like we will talk till our faces are blue about retention of our customers, and then we we might, you know. Uh, shave off like five or seven minutes to talk about how we're going to retain and develop our staff. I do think there's some amazing talent out there. And, but to your point, you know, like uh, the first manager I had was very much so suck it up buttercup. That that was, that was Mm -hmm. just the way he was. And that's just the way that he managed. He just didn't know any better. And, you know, this is funny. I say this and of course, my operations manager will give me a hard time, you know, being a marketing agency is I would actually like to see less money being spent on the acquisition of, of, of new customers and more money being spent in the investment of our people because happy people do make for more profitable dealerships. I just that's that I've seen it. I've seen it a 100 yeah. times over and I'm sure you have as well. Um, but Steve, but before I let you go today for, for everyone that's been listening to our conversation or watching our conversation and just really loving the way we're jamming right now, but would love to connect with you and kind of follow along with you and your journey. What is the best way to do so? Uh, well, you can come to my, uh, primary website, stevestawning.com. Uh, but also I'm, uh, fortunately or unfortunately the only Steve Stawning in the world. So, uh, you can just you. Google me um, and you'll find my LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm happy to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, any of the social networks. Um, all of my, uh, I, I create some video training. It's all 100% free. So I have hours and hours of video training on stevestoning.com. Uh, mostly appointment setting uh, and overcoming objections, but there's also some leadership pieces in there as well. And uh, But you can find me easily on the web. So. Just look for Steve Stoning. That's awesome. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, jam with me today. This has been a blast. You have yourself an amazing day. Thank you, Jason. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Strategy Mob Podcast with your host, Jason Harris. Don't want to miss new content? Be sure to sign up to be a mobster at strategymob.com to stay in the know. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe.